0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 193. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show.
1: The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and
0: economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I am joined once again, I think it's his third appearance, by Walter Block, but this time he's by himself previous two episodes, he was joined by his co-author Bill Barnett to discuss a paper that they had written, different papers in either case. But today we are doing the origin story of Walter Block. So it's just going to be him explaining how we got into Austro-libertarianism. He tells some stories you may have heard elsewhere, but I do try to prod him into giving details so that this is a unique experience for you. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Walter Block. Well, Walter, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Always good to be with you, Bob. So on this one, rather than debating you know, our heresies one way or the other, since if we're disagreeing with each other, then somebody's gotta be a heretic. Uh, let me, I, I thought it'd be good. I've heard you tell some of these stories before, but just for the purposes of this show, to let you sort of give your origin story. So do you mind telling us, you know, how did you get into libertarianism and Austrian economics?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. And with regard to our disagreements, we probably agree on 99.9% <laughs> right. of everything.
0: That's what makes the 0.1% so frustrating.
2: <laughs> well, no, not frustrating. What exhilarating. exhilarating. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, suppose we talked about stuff we agree on, minimum wage, I think we yeah, agree right, on right. that slightly. <laughs> it wouldn't be as much fun. Okay, well, I started out as a Jew in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I was born in 1941, so I was, you know, a teenager in the 50s, and uh, everyone around me was a pinko commie type, and... As Murray uh, used to say, the big question was, uh, do you carry a a communist card or or are you just a fellow traveler? Mm -hmm. And my family was sort of split. Uh, One of my aunts was an actual commie. The other people were sort of, you know, lefties. And um, I was like that. Um, I was mainly interested in girls and sports and uh, politics, you know, sort of uh, everyone else is a pinko. So why shouldn't I be? I, I went to high school with Bernie Sanders and we were on the track team together and I uh, had roughly the same views as him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But he was very political then.
0: I was, uh, as I say, girls in sports, but... Um, can, can I ask, at that time, like, would it have surprised you to learn he was going to be a senator? Or is that like, oh yeah, that's totally what that guy's going to do?
2: Well, you know, he was like uh captain of the track team mm-hmm. and not just because he was one of the best runners. He was also very, um, I don't know, he had a lot of presence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was, I think he didn't win, uh, being president of the, the whole school, but he was very active. He was giving money to, uh, Korean orphans and he was uh, very politically active. Mm-hmm. So if I thought about it, it wouldn't have shocked me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had a lot of, um, presence as I say. And, um, uh, I, the, the funny story I tell about him is, uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't run away from anything doesn't run away from socialism. <laughs> he doesn't run away from not only allowing um, convicts, uh, ex-convicts to vote, but even convicts to vote. But there's one person from whom he ran away, and that was me, <laughs> because he was one of the best runners in the whole city, and I was a mediocre runner. And we ran in the same distances, anywhere from a half mile up. So we'd start off at the same starting line, and all of a sudden he'd run away from me. <laughs> so um, then... We overlapped four years at Madison High School and we, we were really not really bosom buddies, but we lived in the same quadrant away from high school. Mm-hmm. So we'd walk to school sometimes or walk back from school and we'd go to track meets together and we were sort of buddies. And then we overlapped for one year at Brooklyn College and uh, then he went off to Chicago and I stayed at Brooklyn College. And I uh, was sort of a pinko and then Ayn Rand came to speak at uh, Brooklyn College and i came to boo and hiss her because she favored free enterprise and you know everyone knows that free enterprise is uh, fascism and mm-hmm. and creates poverty and it's unfair and it's racist and you know all that stuff and uh after her speech uh, they announced that uh anyone could come for the lunch in her honor even if you disagreed and i didn't get enough booing and hissing so i was going to go convert her to socialism mm-hmm. And there was this long, long table, maybe 50 people on a side, and she was sitting at the head, and I was relegated to the other end of the table. And I turned to my neighbor and I said, What's this? Um, you know, um, capitalism is evil. Uh, and he said, Well, I don't really know all that much about it, but the people who do are at the other end of the table. Uh, so I was, I think, a, a junior in college then, maybe a sophomore, I'm not sure. And I went to the other end of the table. I was a chutzpah then, as I am now. And I stuck my head between Ayn Rand's and Nathaniel Brandon's. I said, uh, does anyone want to debate anyone on socialism versus capitalism? Uh, and uh, they said, well, who? I said, me. I'm the socialist. And mm-hmm. Brandon was very, very nice, very gentle. And he said, well, look, you know, there's no room for you to sit here. But I'll come to the other end of the table, and I'll talk to you on two conditions. One— you promised that the conversation will not end with this one time, but we will keep going until we settle this. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. And the second one, you'll read two books that I'll recommend. Well, the two books that he recommended were Economics and One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt and um, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, those books knocked my socks off. I read Atlas Shrugged, which is, as you know, around 1,200 pages. Mm-hmm. I read it in one weekend. I couldn't put it down. And the Hazlitt book, I mean, the Hazlitt book is, is magnificent. And then I went to his house and Ayn Rand's house, oh, four or five times. Uh, once or twice, I went with my roommate, Ben Klein, who uh, later became a professor of economics at UCLA. Mm-hmm. He was my college roommate. And um, I was converted. I was now a, um, I was never a Randian because, you know, the Randians have views on all sorts of things. But I, I was an economics Randian. Mm-hmm. I mean I believed in free enterprise, but, you know, they had all these other – views on epistemology and metaphysics and god knows what and aesthetics and it, it just sort of went right over my head i wasn't interested in that not that i disagreed but it it didn't grab me mm-hmm. but they were a cult
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know i go to the nbi lectures and and if you That's ask the nathaniel Stein, brandon institute Nathaniel Brennan Institute, mm-hmm. if you um, asked Ayn Rand or Brandon a question like, you know, on page 433 of Atlas Shrugged, you said this. Could you please elaborate on that or, you know, where'd you get the idea? And she would answer the question, that would be fine. But if you said on page 433, you said this, but on page 798, you said that, and I see a contradiction, you know what she would say? She would say, get out get out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you ask a polite question. I mean, you know, you ask Murray Rothbard a question or you ask you or I, who are now the leaders of the libertarian Austrian movement, you ask us a question. We're not going to tell some young kid, you know, to shut up or get out. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
2: but these were the only free enterprise people I knew. So I had this sort of schizophrenic approach avoidance. I'd go there for a few weeks and I'd get sick of it. And then I'd leave and then it'd be three months and I didn't have my fix of free enterprise. Mm-hmm. So I'd go back.
0: So, um, can, Walter, took, um, can I ask you though, just the conversion, was it that you had been a socialist or commie pink, whatever, just by osmosis and you hadn't really thought it through or was it like you had a whole bunch of beliefs and views that needed to be dismantled?
2: No, just osmosis. Okay. I, I, I. I, I never read Marx. I, mm. I, you know, I didn't know the labor theory of value. I didn't okay. know why okay. it was wrong. Mm. Uh, I didn't know anything about uh, Mises's, uh, you know, you, you can't plan unless you have uh, prices that indicate scarcities and all that. It's just osmosis. I mean, everyone else was a pinko, and, right, right. and I wasn't interested. You know, so um, I was that. That was my thing. I, I never really thought about it that. As I say, it was girls and sports for me mm-hmm. in high school and in college. Uh, until I got religion. And by right. religion, I mean enterprise. So uh, I, I, was, I majored in philosophy. Mm-hmm. But when I got this, economics was very interesting. So I didn't know whether to go to philosophy or economics. So I, did, I entered two master's programs, Brooklyn College Philosophy and City College of New York um, uh, Economics. And I would take, you know, uh, three courses of this and two courses of that and next semester reverse it. And I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And then uh, I decided it was economics. Mm-hmm. So I, I enrolled at Columbia University for a PhD in economics. And I met Larry Moss there. And Larry Moss said, you got to meet this guy, Murray Rothbard. He's an anarchist. Mm. I said, what? An anarchist? Uh, anarchist is crazy, you know, because I was uh, still a randish right, kind right. of person. Mm-hmm. Uh, anarchy is crazy. You, you need government. I mean, if you didn't have government, we'd have chaos. We'd have anarchy. <laughs> and um, so I refused to meet Murray. Genius here. <laughs>
1: mm.
2: <laughs> I mean, that, I got to get a prize for that to, to refuse to meet Murray Rothbard. <laughs> so anyway, um, one time, Larry and his roommate, Jerry Wallows, ganged up on me. They met me on the street and said, you must meet Murray Rothbard. You must meet Murray Rothbard. I said, okay, fine, I'll meet Murray Rothbard. And that was, my God, that, that was, <laughs> wow, did that blow me away. Uh, Murray converted me out of anarchism in about 10 minutes using, he was very sneaky. He used Henry Hazlitt on me. hmm he said, "Well, look, you uh, believe that we shouldn't have the post office run by government, right? Yeah, yeah, because of you know, if they don't do a good job, they stick with us and they can never go broke. Well, why can't that apply to police? Why can't that apply to armies, uh, courts, whatever? And you know, in about ten minutes, I, I had this sort of light bulb over my head, mm-hmm. and then um, then I started reading *Man, Economy, and State*, and um, I mean." It, I mean, that's when I was born. You know, they say Christians are, what are they, reborn? What's the word? Born again. Born again. That's it. Mm -hmm. I was born again. I mean, you know, this was, this was me. By the way, I have a criticism of Murray Rothbard. He stole a lot of my ideas. Mm -hmm. It's true. He published them 30 years before I ever heard of them, but we don't have to (laughs) worry about that. I I started thinking originally and, and I thought along Rothbardian lines and then I'd read what Murray wrote in Economy in Many and State or any of his other books. Um and um my big another big criticism of Murray Rothbard was stomach cramps. You sit in Murray's living room for hour after hour and he is so funny. I mean you just start laughing and laughing mm-hmm. and laughing and, and you know you keep laughing for three hours straight. You get stomach cramps. Uh so I was born again, uh, and I've never you know, I, I see Murray as having you know in a in a relay race, uh, one guy hands off the baton to the next guy. but mm-hmm. well, I feel that Murray has handed on a baton to me,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I try to hand the baton to younger people. You, when you were a baby, uh, mm-hmm. in graduate school, I was on your case about various mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, yelling at you to you know get your PhD and stop farting around doing this right, and that. Right, and the other. right, right. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, i regard myself as the Jewish mother of the movement now, you know, mm-hmm. eat your vegetables, or <laughs> eat your gefilte fish.
0: And I, I, try to pass on what Murray gave to me to younger people. So on that note, like he actually was, would give you like career guidance or you just mean just his intellectualism and willingness to debate? Intellectualism. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And uh, not so much career advice. Um, uh, but, um, a little, little career advice, but, you know, just he was an inspiration. I mean, mm. he was sort of like uh, Mozart and Bach rolled up in, in the one and, mm. and Mozart and Bach are my favorite composers. And I just can't
0: say enough about Murray. He, he was uh, just Murray the Magnificent. It's funny because, you know, as you know, he has some critics and it just the what? The, the, the. uh Yeah, I know. I'm glad you're sitting down for that one. But just the disparity, you know what I mean? Like people like, it's not just, oh, I think he's wrong. It's like, this guy is a monster. And yet when you hear people who knew him and, you know, they were like, that, that's like the number one thing. It's like, oh, he was so funny. Like he's always cracking jokes. Oh, he, he was, uh, I mean, he had a lot of enemies, but,
2: you know, people would break with him
1: mm-hmm.
2: because he disagreed with them on something. I disagree with Mario on four or five things that are important things. And he never came within a million years of breaking with me. Mm -hmm. It's rather his followers, his lieutenants, uh, would break with him because they disagreed with him. Murray didn't break with anyone. Murray was a sweetie pie. I mean, he would call other people a sweetie pie, but he was a sweetie pie. Mm -hmm. He was uh, kind and gentle and and lovely. Now, it's true, you know, uh, he would disagree with uh, Bill Buckley or, um, I don't know, um, uh, Karl Marx. And and (laughs) he wasn't very gentle with those guys. But in person, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: uh, I, I never saw him lose his temper. Uh, he, he was just a total sweetie pie. Now in his writing, he was critical of, uh, of people. Mm-hmm. I remember one time when he first disagreed with Mises, his mm-hmm. mentor, he was sort of, I wouldn't say scared, but uh, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And yet he felt he had to. I mean, you know, uh, he disagreed with Mises on monopoly theory, for example. Uh, uh, Mises thought that there could be such a thing as a monopoly on the free market. And Murray said, no, uh, but it was—he was sort of tentative, not tentatively, not tentative um, um, intellectually, but th- the idea that he would be saying something against Mises mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. was uh, uh, was difficult for him. And I feel the same way. I mean, whenever you disagree with Murray, you, you know—I <laughs> mean, Murray's a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean he's right on everything. And, you know, I've disagreed with him and, and probably I'm wrong on everything. I've disagreed with him, but until I see, you know, why I'm wrong, I'm, I'm going to keep disagreeing with Murray, but, but he was very gentle.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He, you know, uh, on voluntary slavery, I must've bugged the crap out of him 15 times about voluntary slavery. And, you know, he, he was, you know, he disagreed and uh, he would say, you know, let's talk about something else or, uh because we've you know we've done this over and over and over again i was very intense
0: mm-hmm. still am a bit folks let's take a break from the discussion to remember that nobel laureate economist who has a column with the new york times that's right it's our good friend paul krugman believe it or not krugman has not reformed his ways arguably he's become worse since tom woods and i discontinued our famous podcast critiquing krugman first weekly and then bi-weekly. But you know what? You can still recapture some of that zeal for truth and skewering that you came to love when you listen to the podcast if you go get the book, Contra Krugman. And to be clear, it's not a transcript of those episodes. These are columns that I wrote over many years critiquing Krugman, and there's a whole list of different subject areas. It's not just Keynesian economics. It's also climate change, all sorts of stuff in this book. In fact, when I read the initial manuscript, you know, looking for typos and stuff like that, when I was done, I, I just thought, you know, should we just hang up the show here? Because what more needs to be said? I almost felt bad for him. It was it was pretty brutal. And uh, at this point, we have stopped the show. So maybe it was prophetic. To get your hands on this book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. I think you're going to like it. So can you just tell us a little bit, I, you know, I've heard stories about, oh, you end up playing like risk till four o'clock in the morning, that kind of thing. Were those like, did you know two weeks ahead of time? Oh, on this date, we're all meeting at Murray's to play games and stay up all night. Or was it more like you just would stop by or how how did that happen?
2: Uh, We pretty much met almost every night. Uh, You know, Murray was sort of the person that your parents warn you against. Right. Right. I mean, he would drink alcohol and, uh, uh, and uh, stay up late. I mean, Murray went to bed at five in the morning, six in the morning, four in the morning, mm-hmm. get up at two or three in the afternoon. Um, uh, there was a whole Murray Rothbard living room crowd, Leonard Liggio, uh, Joe Peden, uh, Bob Smith, um, uh, Ralph Rako, Ron Hamaway, Walter Grinder, um Jerry Wallows and and Larry Moss, and I'm probably forgetting um, two or three people. Joey, uh, his wife, obviously, uh, was there. Uh, We would just sort of gather. um, I I forget. I don't think we just walked in. Mm -hmm. There was an invitation, um, you know, let's get together Thursday night or Saturday night or whatever. And um, I remember when Carl Hess joined the group for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just uh, the Murray Rothbard living room crowd. The way I see the, the Mises Institute mm-hmm. is
0: just sort of the Murray Rothbard living room bigger. Right, <laughs> and, right. And more systematic. I guess what I'm trying to, like, for example, in a given week, how many nights a week were people hanging out at his place?
2: Maybe two or three.
0: Okay. All right. So that's, all right.
2: Not, not every night, okay. But not mm-hmm. once a week either. The, the rest of, best of my recollection, maybe two or three nights. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I have to tell you another Murray story, since you've got me on Murray stories. Um, I started writing, and I write a lot. And uh, early in my career, I would keep track of how much I wrote per day. And if I wrote uh, 1,500 words, you know, that would be very good in one day.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And a lot of days, it was 500 words or 800 words. And one day, I got 2,400 words. And that, that was way above anything else I'd ever done. So I called Murray. I said, well, how many words can you do in a day? And Murray goes, wah, wah, who counts? Who cares? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, something like that. And I, I kept pushing. And he finally, you know what he said? 800 words an hour.
1: <laughs>
2: now, 800 words an hour, that means an, – oh, and, and it took me that whole – to do 2,400 words, it took me. I got up early in the morning. I stayed, you know, nine in the morning and then uh, two, at, uh, two in the morning the next day. And that was 2,400 words. So in, in my uh, 13 or 14 hour day, mm-hmm. it was roughly equal to his three hours. Right, right. And, you know, I'm not comparing quality, I'm just right. comparing right. quantity. I, I mean, he, he would, now look, a good typist could do more than 800 words. A good typist can do 100 words a Minute mm-hmm. something like that, but you know, Murray would type and and he would put an X, you know, XXX something. This was before computers, obviously, on a typewriter. And he would that was his first draft, and that would go in, and that was it. Whereas, you know, with lesser mortals like you and I, if I can put you in that position, you gotta keep revising these. Mm-hmm. This is no good, and you gotta change that. And but Murray just tossed it out there,
0: he, he was. Really, something. Do you think he like? Did he write it in his head and then just sit down to bang it out? What it was the paper was kind of already in his head, or do you know about how, what his process was? I'm not sure about
2: that, but I remember another story when um, Joey was saying, "Well, you know, you have to uh, uh, tomorrow. You do with this paper." And Murray said, "What?" And, and Murray ran into his living. Uh, you know, we were in the living room. And Murray mm. ran off to his office, and and you know, for an hour he was clacking away, and and he came back with. Um, with a paper so i imagine it, it it sort of just you know some people ask me well suppose you were on a desert island and um, and and you had paper and pencil or you had a computer or you had a typewriter but nobody would ever see what you're writing would you write anyway and i would
1: because mm-hmm.
2: i got to get it out of me mm-hmm. i want to see it on paper i think i think i emulate murray in that way that that it was in him and it, it just had to get out of him right right Um, Oh, speaking of that, uh, Murray and I are very similar in many ways. We're both Jewish, non-believers. We both got PhDs from Columbia. We both married Christian girls who were taller than us. Mm -hmm. What else? (laughs) I'm sure there are other things. We're both Mm -hmm. Uh, Austro-Libertarians. Oh, uh, and I have one thing I have to brag about to you. I don't know how many people can say this. I think maybe Hans Hoppe can say this also, but I once took Murray's class. That is substituted to him at Brooklyn Polytech. Oh, okay. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: He uh, couldn't make his class and he asked me to take his class for him. And I don't think there are too many people that have ever done that. And, um, oh, and I've got one thing over Murray. I have the Murray Rothbard Medal of Freedom. Murray doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: good. Okay. So, uh, it, so it, at that point, like, so by the, I guess you meet him, met him. And so then that's when you, you, the, when you were telling the autobiographical part, you were at a master's, you were in two different master's program, one philosophy and one econ. So then you just decided, okay, now I'm going to get my PhD in econ.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was like in my first year, uh, you know, Murray converted me in about 10 minutes to anarchism, mm-hmm. but it took me a year or two to, to get into Austrianism. Okay. I mean, the idea that you could have a synthetic a priori. Mm-hmm. that you could have something that was apodictically necessarily true and, and you couldn't test it and you couldn't falsify it, and yet it had something to do with the real world and it wasn't a tautology?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That was crazy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But, you know, I had enough respect for Murray at this point that, you know, anything he said I would take seriously. I, I wouldn't, you know, just reject it. But it took me a long time to, to get that. hmm and, and also, you know, Murray used to say that the best time to be converted to Austrianism is one week before you get your PhD. Because if you get converted too early, you start arguing with your professors. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I remember arguing with Gary Becker. I was doing my, he was my dissertation advisor, Nobel prize winner. And, mm-hmm. uh, my dissertation was on rent control and my independent variable was presence of rent control. And my, um, uh, dependent variables, quality of housing or you know amount of housing or whatever, holding constant everything else that could affect that. And usually I got the right sign, namely more rent control, housing worse. Mm-hmm. And usually it was statistically significant, but every once in a while I get the wrong sign. And sometimes it was statistically significant. Mm-hmm. And I'd go to Gary and I, I'd say, you know, look what I got. And if he were a, a real neoclassical, he would have said, Oh, I got this young genius Block who's gonna change everything we know about rent control. Because look at this dissertation. But instead, he he was an Austrian. He said, Block, go out and do it again till you get it right. Mm-hmm. Namely, what was testing what? My crappy econometrics, testing what we know about rent control, or rent control testing my crappy economics and finding my crappy econometrics. Not so good, right? So you know, I have this view that if you scratch a good economist, a good neoclassical like Gary Becker, you'll find an Austrian in there. Mm-hmm. But but he once said that Austrianism is a cult, as did um, uh, James Buchanan, right in my presence.
0: Yeah, well, I I debated David Friedman once on economic method, and uh, yeah, he I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it was I was basically paraphrasing, you know, Milton Friedman's fav, famous essay. And David was kind of like, oh no, well, that's not how he did it in practice though. So it's like, well, you know, it's not my fault for taking your dad seriously when he wrote, this is what, you know, so. So I like, I, in other words, I'm agree with you, Walter, that yes, in practice, they are better than the, what they say when they're telling the public, this is what we do in economics, but. Yeah, they're better
2: economists than they are uh, historians of economics.
0: Yeah, right, that's that's the way I put Historians
2: it of economics or as commentators on economics, they're really bad. But, you know, they know what, what the minimum wage law does. They mm-hmm. know what rent control does. They're, they're pre- very good on those things. You know, we, you know, the Venn diagram, we overlap with them. Uh, they're free trade, uh, favor free trade. Milton Friedman uh, favored uh, unilateral declaration of free trade with everybody. Mm-hmm. You don't get that based on econometric uh, analyses.
1: Right, right. <laughs> and,
2: and, you know, the cardin kruger on, on um, what do you call it, minimum wage. Uh, these guys would say that, you know, that's crap. Right. Uh, they were good economists. Uh, and, and they, as I say, if you scratch them, you find Austrianism in there, right. but it's deeply embedded and they don't like it. And they think it's cultish.
0: Yeah. That's, that's actually something I brought up with in my debate with David Friedman. I said, when it comes to like free trade, what makes someone a free trader? It's like reading Bastiat or something, you know, the petition of the candle makers, it's not looking at regression analyses. Like that would never exactly. convince somebody, but once you see it, and you understand the logic, then it's like, oh, of course I'm for free trade. How could I not be?
2: And and look, there are plenty of econometric analyses that show no um, uh, no unemployment effects of minimum wage because mm-hmm. it, they occurred too soon, or uh, you know, or, or you know, the minimum wage rose by one tenth of a percent, and they show no effect. Well, that just shows your uh, your data is is a
0: little weak. If your data was better, you'd show it. Mm-hmm. Um. So what what do you think, I know we're running out of time here, uh, What what's your view as uh, what the up-and-coming Austrians or Austro-libertarians, I guess, you know, areas that you think, oh, wow, we should have more people doing And I, I know you're not centrally planning the movement, but in terms of areas that you think, oh, wow, it would be great if we had more people looking at these issues.
2: Well, you know, Austrianism is supposed to be about capital theory
0: mm-hmm. and
2: interest rates and the business cycle. And... We don't do as much of that. I mean, we're sort of all over the lot. uh, But, you know, as you say, I'm not a central planner and everyone Mm. should, you know, uh, Bill Barnett and I co-author a lot of articles together. Mm -hmm. And one time we had three or four articles uh, halfway through or three quarters of the way through. And he said, what should I work on now? And My answer was, whatever is the most fun.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: We should have fun uh, promoting liberty and proponing good economics. So uh, everyone should Right on what is the most fun for them at the time. And uh, if it's, um, um, I don't know, transactions cost, or if it's business cycle, or if it's free trade or whatever, um, who cares, uh, whatever it is. Uh, you know, when I started out in this, there were no journals that would publish Austrian economics.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You sort of had a you know, a beg your way, a plead or something. Now we have the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, Review of Austrian Economics, Advances in Austrian Economics. And there are a few others um, in um, um, uh, Matt Mackay in um, Poland and a few other people in South America. So happily, we now have outlets that we didn't have before. And we also have the Mises Institute, which is, you know, a prodigious publisher of everything, Austro-Libertarian.
0: So things are a lot better now than when I started um in, in mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you noticed this but like when I was coming up the the advice that was given to young budding austrian economists who wanted to go into academia changed. Originally it was just keep it to yourself, you know, get, get somewhere, get to the best place you can hide it, then get tenure and then maybe you can come out of the closet as it were. But then it it flipped at some point and now I hear the advice that people give is to say, there's enough places that would hire an Austrian. So you need to let them know who you are so that they can, you know, I don't know how you feel about that.
2: (laughs) I am not as positive as you are. It's true. Like um, at at Loyola, we -hmm. have four out of four Austro-Libertarians. So if Mm -hmm. we're hiring someone like you, if we were thinking of hiring you, it would be a very positive that you're an Mm Austro-Libertarian. But if you want to get a job at Harvard or Princeton or Stanford, uh, I, I don't think you, you put your Austrian foot forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I don't think we're that accepted. And as I say, um, Buchanan and, and um, Gary Becker, both uh, leaders of the mainstream, think it's a cult. So uh, I, I don't think that we're, we're out of, totally out of the closet. We're partially out of the closet. And there are, there are schools now, um, uh, Texas Tech, George Mason, um, uh, a few others in the U.S., uh, several in Europe. Guido like Holtzman is uh, teaching in France, and you know obviously he'd be receptive to an Austro-Libertarian mm-hmm. if he were hiring someone. But for the most prestigious places, um, I don't think that that helps.
0: Well, well that- just to clarify those, but I think the, the counter response would be w- whether you camouflage your Austria or not, you're probably not going to get hired at Harvard. Like it's very hard to get hired as an economist at Harvard. So just saying in general, if you're a young grad, like tell the world who you are, because you're more likely to get a job at one of these. You know, not top five universities. Anyway, you know, I, whether you I agree have, with it, or not, I'm just saying I did notice. I heard the advice from various people sort of change during you know my lifetime.
2: I'm not as positive about that as you. I have a. Um, I am very lucky mm-hmm. that I have maybe a dozen former students of mine at Loyola and at Holy Cross who are now professors of economics. Okay. And I just got one and I'm not going to out him. Right. He got his PhD somewhere in California and Mm -hmm. now he's got a job at a very prestigious place, not Harvard, but one step below Harvard. Okay. There are five Harvards of the South, Mm -hmm. Emory, Vanderbilt, Tulane. Um, He's at one of those. And he won't even have dinner with me (laughs) because he's afraid that someone will see him having dinner with me. And and I said, okay, look, in six years when you get tenure – Mm -hmm. We'll have dinner. Meanwhile, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. And my advice to you is to just do econometric stuff Uh uh, and don't, uh, you know, don't be doing anything Austrian, don't be doing anything libertarian, just do the mainstream stuff and get that tenure. So he's not at Harvard, but he's at a, you know, sort of like Johns Hopkins would be another um, Harvard of the South. Right. He's he's at one of those. And I don't want to even say which one because I don't want to out him. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, my attitude toward him is, well, you know, um, we could sneak off and go to Metairie and have dinner and no one will see us, but I appreciate his point. Mm-hmm. So I'm not as optimistic as, as you about how, uh, how well received we are.
0: Okay. Well, that's the fair enough. Fair enough. I guess the last question I would have is, do you, do you have a sense of, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Like in terms of the short term, just, just- like the fate of freedom around the world that I, you know, know in the U S things don't look so good, but then, you know, I talk to some people in other places and it's like, there's more freedom over there. So do you, do you have any sense of, uh, you know, are you, are you in terms of the near term optimistic or pessimistic? I'm very, very pessimistic.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best articles I've ever written was a, uh, an attempt to understand why it is that Ron Paul gets 1% of the vote.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean in, in a
2: well-ordered world, Ron Paul would be president and, and Rand Paul would now be president and we'd have freedom. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why don't we? And it's a sociobiological analysis and it says we are the way we are nowadays because of what it took to live a million years ago. And you know, for example, um, bathtubs now kill more people than snakes. Mm-hmm. Who's afraid of a bathtub? People are afraid of snakes. We are hardwired for some uh, is the thesis of this. And it's interesting. Uh, this um uh, this article was rejected by 45 journals before it finally uh, got hit, got a hit. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very pessimistic. Uh, I think uh, my wife, my daughter, the Pinkos, happily, my son is a libertarian. Uh, my sister, uh, Pinkos, uh, Pinkos are all around us, and and they're very bright. My daughter is very bright. She's a professor of neuroscience at uh, Indiana University. Mm-hmm. Very bright. Father bragging about his daughter, but. Total Pinko. Where does that come from? They're hardwired. We're fighting biology. It's the rock of Sisyphus. We're pushing the rock up and then the rock comes down. Uh, on the other hand, does that stop me from promoting Liberty? <laughs> Not one bit because it's fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine what I would do if, if I didn't have this career mm-hmm. to promote Liberty and, and good economics. So, um, uh, I, I'm very pessimistic. I, I think that, you know, the amounts of freedom we have is very, very little here and there. And, and you know, um, maybe Rand Paul will become president in 2024. I mean, if he is, then that would be great. Uh, Rand is no Ron, but, you know, Rand is very, very good. He's the best senator, I think, ever uh, in terms of Austro-libertarianism. Uh, he, he, but, you know, the odds are he, he won't be president. It'll be somebody like Mitt Romney or, you know, if it's a Republican or,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or God forbid, um, um, AOC will be president. <laughs> uh, so I'm very pessimistic. But on the other hand, I'm very um, enthusiastic. I'm sure that's come across even now in this interview about, oh, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm doing, promoting liberty. What what else could there be? Um, uh, how can you have a, worth, a worthwhile life if you don't do this? This is magnificent. This is like paying homage again. Uh, Mozart and Bach are, are my favorites. And uh, I, I see libertarianism as, as beautiful. It's an aesthetic jolt. Uh, I want to be around beauty. And, and this is beautiful. I mean, uh, my, my friend, Bill Barnett, uh, a very religious guy, We sometimes talk and he says, what will heaven be like? Heaven will be like, you'll know everything, infinite Mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to make your life here as heavenly as possible. Well, learn stuff (laughs) and that way you'll be more heavenly. Well, uh, I would just add, learn Austro-Libertarian stuff and and you'll have heaven on earth. So I'm trying to have a little heaven on earth by promoting liberty. And and I can't think of anything that's one-tenth as much fun. So uh, I'm very enthusiastic, and, and, and just because I think that we're not going to win, well, maybe in 100,000 years we'll win, uh, because uh, maybe a million years from now, I'm not sure about the sociobiology, how long it takes mm-hmm. to get rid of hard wiring, but you but know, maybe in, in a million years we'll be libertarians. But, so in the long run, hopefully I'm optimistic. I mean, I have children and grandchildren. I want them to have a better life. So I'm, I'm trying to
0: promote liberty and, and good economics. Okay. Well, on that sort of optimistic long run take, we will end it. So folks go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 193. I'll have some links here to the things that Walter touched on. Walter, thanks again for your time. It's an honor to be with you, Bob. Always.
1: You've just experienced another
2: episode of the Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds,
1: and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.